Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, what are the repercussions of shrinking the size of the American military? And I'm joined now by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Kyron Skinner, the W. Glenn Campbell Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution and founding director of the Center for International Relations and Politics at Carnegie Mellon University. Kyron, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, your piece at Strategica focuses largely on the importance of, of grand strategy and on once you've defined that strategy, taking the necessary steps to carry it out. So when it comes to the Obama administration, just to set the context for our listeners, what what is that strategy? What are the most important foreign policy goals for this White House? The most important foreign policy goals for the Obama administration appear to be exactly what he declared in his 2008 presidential campaign and what he followed through on um, during his first term. And that is to end the war end U.S. involvement in the wars that he inherited in Iraq and Afghanistan. He has stayed remarkably on track with that commitment. Beyond that, I don't sense that there are major foreign policy goals um, of this administration. Perhaps we could say retreating from the world as um, the, as the major superpower is a goal of the administration. That's not articulated by the White House, but the behavior would suggest that retreat and retrenchment are at the center of what this president seeks to, um, to achieve for the United States on the world stage before he ends his second term. Let's talk about for a moment how strategy is constrained by outside occurrences. I mean, the Obama administration has been fairly outspoken about this idea of pivoting to the Asia-Pacific region. That, that, that seems to be the part of the world that they want to focus most heavily on. But here we are, and in recent months, I mean, that hasn't been, even though it's been an active area of the world, that hasn't been where the real, <clears throat> the real action has been. I mean, you've had Ukraine, you now have Iraq, you've had the Israeli-Palestinian conflict heat up again. To what extent can this administration or any other administration for that matter, decide that it's going to shift its focus to one part of the world or another when so much of this process is, it seems by necessity, reactive? That's um, the central question of this um, period, especially of 2014. Um, at, in, in this year alone, we've seen the Middle East um, continue to flame up um, from crisis to crisis, and we have in Iraq and Syria um, a a, a jihadist force that has created essentially an Islamic state. At the very moment that the Obama administration is um, moving um, strategic military assets away from um, the central theater of the Middle East toward Asia, um, it's doing it, I think, on the belief that um, the future of global conflicts will happen in um, the Indo-Pacific region. And that China, as a rising great power, will be um, a major force to contend with. And it wants to get ahead of that wave as much as possible by building political economy relationships 
that can later translate into new security arrangements. The problem with the pivot or rebalance, as it's also called, is that it signals to um, the jihadists, the terrorists, um, the, um, the tyrants in the Middle East that the United States is abandoning um, that region where the U.S., quite frankly, still has um, numerous national security commitments and interests, where it has a key ally, Israel, where it has other allies like Jordan um, that need support and protection. So we have this unusual situation of the world's only superpower saying that it's prepared to walk away from the central battles in the world to focus on a region where there are no major military conflicts going on in an anticipation of what the future will look like. How is that rebalance doing on its own terms, by which I mean apart from the factors that you just cited, apart from the, the message that it sends to other parts of the world, especially the Middle East, in terms of its stated goals as far as solidifying our position in the Asia-Pacific region, is the way that the Obama administration is approaching that um, equal to that goal in your judgment? I think it's too early to tell. Um, I do think it has had some stumbles. Um, for example, the um, air-sea battle concept um, unnerved the Chinese and to some degree the Japanese, this idea that the Army, the Air Force and the Navy would coordinate um, a lot more closely um, in conflicts, future conflicts in the region, have better interoperability among their forces, um, made the um, Chinese um, nervous about what U.S. intentions are. And so there's been a, a failure to explain what the Asia um, rebalance actually means. And in that way, I think it can do some harm um, in terms of what the U.S. would want um, vis-a-vis China. But it really is too early to make a major assessment of the Asia rebalance because we're, our tension is being so drawn back to the Middle East, the place um, the, the Obama administration so desperately wants to leave. Yes, and to that point, one of the rationales that the administration has repeatedly given for the idea that they could reduce their focus on the Middle East is that they have largely mitigated, let's say, the threat from al-Qaeda. They've killed Osama bin Laden. They've taken out a lot of the terrorist leadership. That's how the argument goes. How confident are you that we're in a strong position, as strong a position, I should say, vis-a-vis terrorism as the Obama administration has argued? I think that's an argument that the Obama administration has made in the past, but even in in the recent past. For example, in the president's West Point speech in May of this year, just a few months ago, the president talked about um, decimating the al-Qaeda leadership. Um, The problem with that argument, of which I think even um, the White House loyalists are not making as much now, is that um, some of the core leadership of al-Qaeda, principally Osama bin Laden, Um, um, have been eliminated, but at the same time, the idea that al-Qaeda represented has spread and is stronger than ever and has become more dangerous than when al-Qaeda central was in power. So um, I think the Obama administration is in the midst of a rethinking that whole um, narrative that we're safer because al-Qaeda central is not as strong as it was in its earlier days. We see this even um, in the intelligence community. For example, um, 
Lieutenant General Mike Flynn, the former head of the um, Defense Intelligence Agency, um, said recently in, in Aspen at the Aspen Strategy Meeting that we're less safe now than we were 10 years ago. That's a profound statement to come from a leader of one of our top intelligence agencies. Um, and so it undercuts the idea that because Osama bin Laden is gone, we're a lot safer. Under ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, um, we have perhaps the most dangerous threat of global jihad that we have seen in um, in the 21st century. This is the 21st century. The first terrorist state of the 21st century is ISIS. It, it, it's a new way of war. Sorry. No, no problem. And it's it's against this tumultuous background across the world that you've just laid out that we are talking about these sorts of reductions in the in the military. Why don't, if you will, just walk us through the basics of, of what these reductions would look like. Where would we be losing strength and are there certain areas that are insulated or, or protected from cuts? We will be losing strength in just the sheer numbers of um, um, servicemen and women. So the Army would be shrunk a lot smaller, some say down to the size of the U.S. Army um, around 1940. We'd have fewer ships. Some have talked about um, a Navy that's um, down to the size of the Navy um, in the, um, before 1920. But to me, it's not the sheer numbers. Um, it's, it's the fact that when you signal um, to your adversaries and to the rest of the world that you're shrinking your military due to fiscal constraints primarily, and that's a big part of the argument, and you don't tie those, the downsizing or the resizing of the military to a larger set of strategic goals, you help create an international void because we're basically saying certain types of wars, um, traditional um, land wars, we won't be able to fight easily. They won't happen. Um, and we're going to shift our assets to the, the new type of war that we expect to happen. You mentioned, um, you asked about um, the types of, of of the military assets that will be protected, cyber or cyber warfare, special operations, that part of the defense budget will be protected and, in fact, is growing and will continue to grow. But not all threats are non-traditional or irregular. And so it will allow terrorists to link up with more traditional state actors to make it difficult for us um, in the future. Now, some have argued we can surge very quickly. Our forces can be lighter, faster, leaner. They don't have to always be forward deployed. They can do their job and they can exit so that we don't end up in occupying force as we um, appear to be in Iraq and Afghanistan. But if the United States is the only superpower, and we know that it is, it has nearly half the world's defense spending and other countries um, that are potential competitors aren't catching up. We have to play a role that no other country can play for global security. And that means we need a robust military. And yes, of course, we need a robust economy. But it's not clear to me that this is a straight guns versus butter trade-off the way it's being presented by the current administration. And if we have to make that trade-off, it definitely has to be done, not just in the context of fiscal constraints, 
but in the context of a, an agreed upon understanding among the defense community about what the challenges are, what the threats are, and how they should be addressed. That conversation to me has been missing from the strategic guidance documents that have been coming out of um, the Defense Department and White House in the last few years. I want to stay on that fiscal angle for a moment uh, because you were anticipating the next question that I was going to ask you. That has been how the Obama administration has largely justified a lot of these cuts, the issues with the, the debt and deficits. And uh, just to ask you, I guess, the, the, the principal question that emerges from that, in your judgment, recognizing the reality of those financial constraints, is this a, a necessary calculation? In other words, we have to do something like this, but they're just applying it incorrectly or is, is defense spending the kind of priority where you just have to let it dictate the terms of the budget rather than vice versa? I think you never want to let defense spending dictate the overall budget of a country um, and just soak up GDP. That's not the point here. But um, – and you have to realize that there are fiscal constraints that every country faces. Um, there's just not an endless amount of financial resources to do everything one, that one would want to do in the world. But what's troubling about this current period is that it appears that the fiscal argument is being made at the expense of other alternative um, explanations that should, or um, alternatives that should go into the discussion about resizing the military. It's dominating. Um, of course, we can find ways to be more efficient within the Pentagon, and um, the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are committed to getting rid of, of, um, of, of waste, of wasteful spending, um, to making the acquisition, um, acquisitions process a lot more efficient and responsible, looking to the future but being stable in the present. Um, so everyone would want to see cuts along those lines made. But we're talking about a deeper set of cuts that are not being really tied back to a strategy, and that's what's troubling. Also, we're talking about cuts at a time when the world, as um, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel said this week, is blowing up. Um, it's not just Iraq and Syria, but those alone are troubling. It's still the ongoing effects of the Arab Spring throughout the broader Middle East. It is a China that's rising. It's um, you know the homeland that has to be protected. What ISIS seeks to do is to destroy not just the West, but the United States in particular. All of this needs to be put in a major framework that helps then guide how we reshape the military. But when you read the strategic guidance documents, like the Quadrennial Defense Review of 2014, you do not come away from that read um, with an understanding of what the strategy is and how the cuts are tied back to the larger goals of being, um, you know, protecting the homeland. It is for that reason that a few months after the QDR, a bipartisan group of defense experts issued their own response. And in it, they made some of the points that I'm making now. And in it, they talked about how the growing insurgency in Iraq could have a fundamental impact on how we make our defense calculations, including defense spending. 
All right. Our guest has been Kyron Skinner, the W. Glenn Campbell Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution and founding director of the Center for International Relations and Politics at Carnegie Mellon University. You can read her piece and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Kyron, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for the time. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.